You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but for many, it is merely fiction. Join our conversation as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show, visit us online at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome back, listener, to episode 20 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. And you guys really did come through for us. I said last episode that we wanted to hit 500 subscribers before episode 20, and you guys delivered. So thank you for helping us reach that milestone. Fireworks. Go ahead and pause your podcast for a brief dance party, and then you can pick it back up in 30 (laughs) seconds or so. That's right. Again, unless you're driving, in which case, please keep your eyes on the road. Be responsible. Come on. (laughs) And uh, now we're going to go ahead. We'll transition. We have left Eden, and now we're going into the big, wide, and scary world of Genesis chapter 4. And just reading ahead a little bit, I want to go ahead and say Spotify tells us that at least two of y'all are preteens. I don't know what you're doing listening to this podcast, but I want to caution you. Maybe you want to ask your parents if you want to continue listening to this podcast right now, because this is will be our very first uh, PG-13 rated podcast. Isn't that right? Yeah. So we, we all know that we're talking to Matt's kids. They're the only preteens that we know that allegedly listen. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so I'm not going to go. I'm not going to ruin uh, the subject. Uh, I'm not going to steal anyone's thunder. Uh, let me just say this as a pastor, as someone who has done a lot of a lot of a lot of Bible study. Um, I am excited about today's episode because, you know, you do a certain amount of study and and you teach the Bible often. You get to the point where it's rare that you hear a new idea. Or if you do hear a new idea, usually it's like, eh, I don't know about that. Like it trips your meter pretty easily. Um, Matt was discussing uh, a take on some of what's going on in this passage with me the other day. And two things happened. Uh, number one, he, he set forth an idea I had honestly never considered. And number two, it made so much more sense. It gave such a richer understanding to the passage than what I had already considered. And that's a rare thing. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to let Matt take point on today's episode because I really want him to, uh, I'm going to use a pun because I have to have a segue. I'm going to let him uncover a little bit of what we're talking about today. <laughs> Oh. Well, the truth is, is the episode is titled Sexual Healing, and you all want me to take point so I can take all the blame if it goes just turns out terrible. Absolutely. But, <laughs> but anyway, so we even but we, talked but about But I gave you a nice flowery this, introduction before I threw you to the wolves. Yeah, that, that was good. That was good. So we even <laughs> talked about it. Should we call this episode Sexual Healing? And I, it, after talking about it, I do think it fits, and I think there's something something to it. So I'm going to begin by reading uh, just the first verse. Oh, no, we're out of Eden, but we're back to two verse episodes. <laughs> we are out of Eden and we're going to read one verse. Welcome back to the Better so Than Fiction Bible Podcast. We're not going podcast. really fast. Welcome back to the Better Than Fiction <laughs> it, it was Bible a lie Bible. when we told you that the pace was going to pick up. It, yeah. it was a lie. <laughs> so, okay, it, out of the ESV, the scripture says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived 
and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, before I get into this, Nathan, just give us a quick rehash on what it means that Adam knew wife. We know they're talking about physical intimacy. This is not like he knew her in the sense that, you know, they played a board game together. No, no, no. We know this is sex. What, how is, remind us in case we have forgotten the Genesis 1 through 3 stuff, where have we seen this word before? Yeah, so most recently it's played a pivotal role in uh, Genesis 3, right? Um, Because when the serpent is tempting uh, Eve to eat of the fruit she's not supposed to eat, uh, the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, despite this, uh, you know, this temptation or because of this temptation, both Eve and Adam eat of the fruit of the tree. And what does the text tell us? Um, the text says, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. Later on, when God is commenting on this, uh, what does he say? Uh, this is a verse that Matt likes to stress. Uh, then God said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And this is the next occurrence of that word. So clearly when it's talking about no, here it's a euphemism for sex. Uh, By the way, it's the same one that we see in the New Testament with Joseph and Mary. And Joseph did not know Mary until after the birth of Jesus, right? Um, uh, And so here it's a a euphemism for sexual activity, um, but it's capturing that this type of knowledge is beyond the language of idea. It is inextricably the knowledge that comes with experiencing something. It's a, In other words, it's a kind of knowledge that cannot be unknown or unexperienced. That's really good. So as we think about this, you know what I love about the scripture? First of all, if, if you're already uncomfortable, perhaps you grew up in a household or it's just the way you're wired, you do not like sex being talked about and especially in some kind of church setting or Bible study setting. Yeah, church culture, uh, you know, church culture a lot of times has made discussions of sexuality as as important as they are. It's made it taboo. Correct. And we see that you're not even four chapters into the Bible and we're talking about sex. It's the first thing they do after they leave Eden. Yeah, I love that. They don't even, they haven't even started <laughs> okay. farming yet. They have not even started farming yet. So here's the and picture. I'm not, I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be crass or flippant about that, but it's yeah. But so I'm not trying to be crass either. But just think about it, folks. They're naked in the garden. They realize they're naked. They make clothes. Then God makes them permanent clothes. They get kicked out of the garden. And what does Adam say to Eve? He says, "Let's get naked again." If we're flying by at thirty thousand feet, it's just like, oh yeah, well they had sex and now they're having a kid. But there is something more that is happening here. What do we know about this? How do we tie this statement? Now, Adam knew his wife back into Genesis chapter three. Well, the last the last time they knew something that they had not. uh, So the last time that they knew something that they had not known before, it was devastating knowledge, right? They knew that they were naked. And so the last time that they had a new sense of knowing, they covered up. Right. And I don't know that this is necessarily a new sense of knowing because we really don't know. They could have had sex in the Garden of Eden. It's just an unanswered question. But this is the first time it's mentioned in the text. That's significant. 
Correct. This is the first time it's mentioned in the text, even though they were told in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply. But what we see here is that after the catastrophe, after the breaking of paradise, the first thing they do is they are intimate with each other. Now, when we think about intimacy, I jokingly said the first thing Adam says to Eve, his wife, hey, you know, let's take our clothes off. Let's get naked. However, there's something more here because the last time their clothes were off, they had felt shame. That's it. Now, up until that time, they had felt no shame. That's Genesis 2.25. They were naked in the garden and unashamed. Naked and unashamed. So sex between a man and his wife is meant to be that glass slipper, that shining little star that is left over from Eden. It's the one place post-fall where we can experience the intimacy of Eden. Now, this is not just to say that all Eden was about was sexual intimacy, but in a fallen world, the fact of being totally vulnerable, which is what takes place when a man and a woman are intimate, being vulnerable before each other and be ex- being accepted and embraced, or at least this is God's design. Again, because right after they cover up, intimacy. there's a rejection. Lord, the woman you gave me, she did it. Right, right. But now they have come together and there is an acceptance of each other. They are seeing each other's nakedness and their flaws, and they are coming together and embracing one another. And this is the first thing that takes place after the catastrophe of Eden. So there is a healing that is taking place in intimacy because it's the one place, it's the one holdout and left over that's pre-fall that we have that connects us back to Eden. Well, and I, now, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I love that on two levels, Matt. Number one, um, it's kind of like we talked about last week, just that that longing for the transcendent. So this is mm-hmm. this is very like C.S. Lewis and the theology of it. But C.S. Lewis, you know, uh, if if asked what what is heaven going to be like, he would say, you know, we get these glimpses of of a heavenly state in the best, most fleeting moments here on earth. So the intimacy of of sex between man and wife, or you know, the the feeling of satisfaction of sharing a good meal with an old friend, or you know, you might throw in something that would be anachronistic for him, but you know that 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 rush that you get of on a roller coaster at the theme park. It, it's the reason why roller coasters are only about you know a minute and a half long or less. It's 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 a feeling that in our earthly fallen state is not meant to be sustained indefinitely, but it's a glimpse of something more, right? Uh, and right. so uh, you know what you're putting forth is uh, a, a means of recapturing that Edenic state. Again, it's not just a place of being; it's a state of being, uh, but. But this, this sexual union of the man and the woman in the context for which God designed it is a means of, even in a fleeting capacity, recapturing all the wonder of that relationship like you saw in Genesis 2.25. Which, by the way, is why well, Jesus and Paul will quote Genesis 2.25 when they're speaking on male-female relations in the New Testament. The other thing I like about this 
is like we said last week, just because they're out of Eden doesn't mean God's out of the story. Because after, after Adam knows his wife, she conceives and bears Cain. And then listen what she says. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The same God who gave them the command to be fruitful and multiply is acknowledged uh, in the birth of Cain after they're out of the Garden of Eden. This is such a better way to read this verse because I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I have always read this verse as little more than just an introductory statement to the Cain and Abel exactly. story. That, hey, uh, I'm, I'm a pastor and would-be theologian, and the same is true for me. When Matt was unpacking this for me the other day, I, I was like, how do I let everyone know that I'm going to join First Baptist Tupelo as a member? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it, 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 was just such, it was such a beautiful richer reading of the text and, I, and it, it it was one of those things like how have i not read it that way always it came from a, a life experience for me and i'm not about to talk about my the intimacy between me and my wife you know on the recorded air because, because if you are then your kids definitely need to stop listening yeah intimacy is supposed <laughs> to be between a man and a woman absolutely all right however what happened was a few years ago my son died it's been three and a half years now. Judah died suddenly, unexpectedly. And it was several months after his death that my wife was talking to a dear friend and she is a prayer warrior. And she was letting this dear friend know that we were going to have a baby. It was going to be Lucy, our fourth daughter. By the way, God bless you for that many women in your household. You are, you and Peter are completely outnumbered. <laughs> you have no idea. Women right, are great. So, that's that's not how I meant it. I just yes. meant the odds and are not in your I favor in you, those Hunger Games. That's right. Yeah. They say the same thing about us. But anyway, when she told this dear friend, hey, we're going to have a baby, the lady responded, oh, thank God, I've been praying for that. She said, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't realize you were praying for us to have a baby. She said, oh, no, 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 no. I've been praying that you and Matt would be able to do, and this is what she said, be able to do the husband and wife thing. She said, I was just so worried that after the death of Judah, your intimacy would be driven apart. And I had been praying, it's in my prayer journal, that I pray for your intimacy. Now, what's funny about this, Nathan? I told this story at First Baptist Church about a month later that there was a lady, because when Andrea told me this, that this dear friend of ours was praying for our sex life, I said, she's praying for what? <laughs> and, uh, and she said, yeah, that's what she said. Well, I told that story in church at First Baptist Church. After church, Nathan, I had more men come up to me of all ages saying, hey, preacher, how do you get me on that woman's prayer there list? There it is. <laughs> so, but what I'm getting at here is the whole idea of intimacy between a man and a woman is found throughout the scripture yeah. to bring not just salvation ultimately, but to bring healing, healing and restoration. I think of David and Bathsheba when after they sin with each other, sin against her first husband, Uriah, and having him killed, and their first baby dies. We often stop the story there, but the story goes forward, 
And after the death of their first baby, and they mourned for that baby, it says, David laid with his wife Bathsheba again and conceived a child, and the Lord loved this child. Don't lose. That's this, this is that Genesis 4 moment, that the intimacy of coming together, even in the broken state that they were in, they were living in a mess of their own making. God used their intimacy to bring yeah, healing. It's interesting that you uh, uh, mentioned the loss of Judah, your son. Um, last year during the pandemic, what a you know what a disorienting year. Like people, uh, it's hard to it's hard to fight uh, a battle that you don't know what the weapon on the other side is. People just it was an existential crisis for so many, and and for many continues to be. But one of my ways of trying to process everything that last year involved was I actually went. Uh, to several people, both in, in the church I'm presently serving and churches I've served in the past. And I, and I tried to reach out to people that had gone through terrible, terrible things, just real trauma. Matt, you and I talked uh, at length about, about uh, Judah um, and just how you processed that and how you sustained faith in the middle of that. Um, but I can't tell you how many couples said something to me. Um, uh, and, and, you know, Couples who lost a child, one couple who lost both sons about three weeks apart, uh, talking about the importance of their faith uh, in that uh, and the importance of leaning on each other rather than leaning away from each other in the midst of that trauma. In other words, the, the necessary of the healing mechanism of relationships, both the relationship with God, who is part of the narrative here, and the man and wife relationship. Because again, Look at the trauma that they have experienced in losing the garden. Again, not just a, uh, you know, I've moved before. That's very stressful. Not just moving the existential trauma of losing Eden, that state of being. Paradise is lost. And part of the healing mechanism, it's a brilliant catch in the text. And I think it's right there wide open. I just didn't see it till you mentioned it. Part of the healing is the sexual union of man and woman. And not, in other words, right after we have a passage about the introduction of death, the story is carried forth with the promise of God's presence through new life. Gandalf, let me ask you a question. If I were to okay. ask you to articulate a theology of sex, where would you, where would be offhand, would you start in Genesis 4-1? Where would be the go-to passages just based on growing up in church? No, man, I don't think anything Old Testament. Song of Songs. <laughs> so, yeah, Song of Songs. Or a lot of our go-to, unfortunately, has been the seventh commandment, mm. which is thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the seventh commandment is there for a reason, and it's holy, and it's good. However, we don't build our theology of intimacy off of the seventh commandment. We make sex a prohibitive topic rather than a proactive topic. Correct. Genesis 4.1 is be the first place. Be fruitful and multiply. It's proactive. Be fruitful and multiply is pre-Genesis 4. Genesis 4.1 is the first place where intimacy is actually talked about. Yeah. So if we're building a narrative theology, a biblical theology about sex, and we, perhaps we're talking to a, uh, a young couple or we're talking to people who aren't married or even people who are married, where do we start in what sex is supposed to be when you look at the Scripture? Well, you start in Genesis you look at Genesis 1 through 3, and there's not a whole lot there, but when you get to Genesis 4, you see the man and the woman using this gift as God has designed it to bring healing 
to bring each other together. Yeah, well, I talked about uh, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, kind of an up-and-coming Christian. Well, she's uh, already arrived, but she's kind of arrived on the scene in the past couple of years as, as a, you know, uh, a new major Christian apologist. She's got a great book that came out uh, two years ago now uh, called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. And she, she takes some claims outside the faith, and she really revisits and examines them. And uh, religion is often compared to a drug. And she said, well, saying religion is like a drug is is not distinguishing between, you know, crack cocaine and a potentially life-saving drug. A lot of a lot of whether a drug is good or, or bad is the context in which it is taken or for which it is taken, the content of the drug itself and the amount uh, that someone to which someone is exposed. And, and that's exactly what you're saying about sex. Sex in its creative context is a very good thing, but God intends it for one man, for one woman, both as a means of, uh, you know, carrying the human race forward through progeny, but also as a, there's something more to it than that. It, it is, it is the return glimpse of Eden. It is, it is the there's a transcendent yeah. something. And, and man, if gosh, I don't want to overspeak, but if I, I am so blessed to have married above my station uh, I do believe that sexual intimacy is between the man and the woman um, for their relationship. But to to have that vulnerability and that acceptance and that affirmation and to see new life come from that, it, it's hard to find a bigger or better blessing within the, the normal human condition than that. When, when we look at Song of Solomon, which is that semi-erotic poetry right there in the middle of the Bible. Matt will cover all those and- episodes. <laughs> so, Matt, you will be re- you will be reading all. You, you, you've now been pigeonholed on the podcast of the sex uh, talk guy on on this on on this topic. Okay, so when we think about this stuff, though, unfortunately, when it comes to what the church is known for, a lot of us or a lot of people just think that Christian thinks Christians think sex is bad, or the church thinks sex is bad or just all sex is inappropriate and even people within the church not just outside the church you know think that sex is dirty it's not a dirty word of course it can be used uh, in ways that are not designed by god which can bring shame into our lives but it's interesting when it comes to sexual relationships that are not designed by god it's interesting that when we talk about those in church when we talk about those in bible study and as christians we almost always start with, you know, God's design and God says don't do it and leave out this narrative theology that first sex is meant to be a blessing. Because In a real sense, when, it's, it's, it's paradise. It's heavenly. <laughs> yes, it is this one moment that you can return to Edenic vulnerability and feel the acceptance even though they were pushed apart by their sin, now they have come together and embraced each and other. I, I, so, again, I love the imagery that you that you turned me onto. They sin, they cover up, but when they come together as man and wife, they uncover. Sex in the right context recaptures something about Eden. Sex in the wrong context sets us up to experience the trauma of the fall over and over again. And that's why when it comes to sexual sin, there is such a shame that is felt more so than any other sin. And it's, and it's tied into that. 
uh, and this is um, this is this is such this is why I love this um, this focus on this verse that you brought. Um, it's because the church, on the one hand, believes that in a salvific point of view, from a salvific point of view, sin is sin. Any sin can separate us uh, from God's creative design for us. Any sin is deserving of punishment. Jesus had to die for any and all sin. Correct. Um, but the church in recent years, especially, has not really known how to articulate. So why? What is this added dimension of complexity about sexual sin? How how do we hold on to the sin is sin uh, viewpoint uh, from a salvific point of view, but also kept, capture something uh, at, at a different or related level when it comes to sexual sin? And I think this framework that you set forth is capturing all of that perfectly. But even secular society acknowledges this. For instance, that, you know, someone who commits a sexual offense is deemed by secular society as a danger to society. Why? Because of the wounds that it causes on another party. So something that I also want to mention here, because when you talk about sex, it can also be a very hurtful topic because there are people that are in unhealthy marriages. There are people who have been wounded sexually by people uh, against their wishes. It And that, even though it may not even have been by their own volition, they have been wounded and felt the sting of the fall because of this. And I just want people, if you're listening, number one, if you have been wounded sexually, First of all, my heart goes out to you, and I, I want to say that I'm sorry, and I want to say, according to Genesis, that's not been God's design. This, that, this is something that a broken world has taken, a good gift of God, and weaponized it against itself. Mm. And Paul even gets to this in the New Testament yeah. when he talks about he who sins sexually sins against himself. Like, there is no, well, I can do whatever I want. Well, no, there, you're wounding yourself, and certainly you wound other people. And even secular society acknowledges this. So this is the theology behind. Sex is meant to be a blessing. Sex is meant to be this place where the clothes come off in intimacy so that we can be vulnerable and accepted vulnerable and accepted at the same time. And Matt. And by, oh, by the way, I, I've dealt with this in pastoral counseling. I'm not a good pastoral counselor. So don't, if you think, oh, I want to talk to Matt. No, you don't. I, I'm, I'm not very good at it. You can call Nathan. Um, but I've dealt with this in counseling. There is a temptation that we, as people who believe the gospel, when there has been someone who's been wounded in a marriage by a sexual offense or maybe outside of a marriage that we want to tell the offended party, Hey, you know what? Forgive and move on. Now I know the Bible teaches us to forgive. I know the Bible tells us and teaches us that we will never under any circumstances be called upon to forgive anyone more then God has forgiven us. I know all of that is true. But to flippantly tell someone who has been wounded sexually, whether it's by their spouse, and, and when I say wounded sexually, it may not be a, like some kind of physical abuse. 
a wound sexually could be the fact that you don't have it. You don't have it. Your needs aren't met at all. That could be a wound too, because it's God's design that married couples do. So, but what I'm getting at is just to flippantly tell someone, hey, you just need to forgive that person and move on is to fail to it's acknowledge the edenic level hurt. Yeah, this is deep trauma. That has taken place. It's the only the only thing I would supplement your comments with, um, uh, because this is just, I haven't met many people that have not been affected by this at some level or, or have some relationship that's affected by it at some level because of the world in which we live and have lived now since Eden. Um, but I would say this, one of the, one of the most um, important pictures of hope that we have, again, you know, I, we talked in the last episode about the God who leaves the garden. Um, one of the metaphors for God's relationship to his people uh, in the Old Testament, one of the primary metaphors is that of the faithful husband with the unfaithful wife. God, God knows the trauma. Uh, that we're discussing God and and God wants the vulnerability that we're discussing because God initiates the type of relationship that we're discussing um and so uh, I I think uh again I think it's neat on the other side of the aftermath of sin this is the picture of re, you know this very quick but so essential to the narrative uh, uh this is the picture of restoration and this this activity that can be associated with because it has the potential for such harm is precisely the instrument that God uses for healing. Um, th this is the thing that brings the man and the woman back together, and this is the, the context for mentioning that God is still part of the equation. It reminds me of a Flannery O'Connor quote. I'm a big fan of Southern, Southern Lit. Anyway, uh, she's written a lot of short stories, and uh, somebody, a reporter, asked her once, why is it that Southern authors are always writing about freaks? And she says, because in the South, we still know what one is. <laughs> but that's funny. But when it comes to the scripture, there really is no such thing as a freak. We're all created in the image of God. We're all in need of healing. God has given us the gift of procreation and intimacy with each other in order to bring us healing. But ultimately, that doesn't save us. It's not intimacy, sexual intimacy. And there are plenty that believe if I just find the right girl, the right guy, I can get that right life. It's just going to be perfect for me. Ultimately, this takes us to the need of the true intimacy with the true marriage partner which can only be found and fulfilled. Well, in well that's Jesus. it. This this side of this side of the sexual revolution, you know, mid 20th century, you know, the Kinsey report and all that. Uh, we have made sexual longing and this is not this is not um, uh, this is relatively recent within the course of human history. We have made sure. sexual longing and re and relation we we've given it a transcendent a heavenly status. If I if I find my soulmate uh, if, if my romantic life is perfect, that'll pretty much be heaven on earth. Um, and uh, the Bible has, uh, I, think, I think you've demonstrated, the Bible has so much more to say on the subject. You know, that's one of the reasons why I love this project and I love this podcast is that you, you would never expect to go 
from Eden like we just were to a subject, you know, about uh, we've had a whole episode, one verse about intimacy. And I, you, you know, Matt, you've talked about knowledge, right? You've opened my eyes to a new way of reading this verse that I had previously just discounted as just, you know, an explanation of where Cain came from to get to the next story. But uh, it's, it turned out to be, like we always say, it's mo uh, more, not mm, less, yeah. right? That's good. It, it turned out to be more richer than we first thought, or at least since I first thought. And it's cool to see uh, this really, really early picture of intimacy, which will then get tapped into later, you know, because Jesus will call himself the, the groom of the church that's right it. the church is the bride that's it. that's it and it's really cool to see that image the bible ends with a marriage ceremony and and a return to eden that gum mm, so good oh oh nathan that's so good i, I marriage ceremony yeah. i didn't write the bible it <laughs> i peaked i peaked at the end i know i know we're still in genesis yeah. 4 but i peaked at the end <laughs> mm. Well, you know what? It's it's almost like that it's a cohesive narrative written with purpose. Mm. Who would have thought? And, uh, well, thank you for listening. And if you're our, our two pre-tea listeners, um, be wary of pursuing good with, apart from God. There you go. Yes. Oh, amen what, to that. should be the takeaway. Amen to that. All right. And we, you guys can join us next week when we get to, I presume, who knows how fast we're going to go, but when we get to the story of Cain and Abel, uh, you can join us next week. And we'll see you later. God bless. Shalom. It, it works. It will all work.